Hello, and welcome to What is X? I'm your regular host, Justin E.H. Smith, and this is a podcast of The Point magazine. Regular listeners will know the rules. Uh, On each episode, I invite a guest to discuss with me a question of the form, what is X? Where X is filled in differently on different episodes, usually with some difficult and, let's say, large and philosophically or intellectually or culturally important yet nebulous concept. In this pursuit, we're somewhat imitating the dialogues of Plato, where Socrates would seek with his interlocutor to answer a question of the similar form. Now, in these dialogues, uh, Socrates would usually end up in one of three positions by the end, namely agreement, disagreement, or aporia. Aporia being the Greek word for dead end or Uh, as it was sometimes put in Plato's dialogues, a wind egg. So today with me uh, is a guest I've long admired and I'm happy to finally be able to talk to, a writer and critic based in Berlin, Ryan Ruby, who will be discussing with me the question, what is criticism? So welcome, Ryan. Thank you for having me, Justin. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, before we get started, I was wondering if you could just say a little bit about the work you do and what your questions are in your own critical work. Yeah, so I am the author of a novel, The Zero and the One, which was published in 2017. Uh, I am the author of an as-yet unpublished book-length poem called Context Collapse, which is a survey of the, of the history of poetry uh, in poetic form, um, which concentrates on the history of poetry as a medium, which I'm sure we'll have uh, much to discuss uh, later on. Uh, and in the last, say, year and a half or so, I've been working primarily as what one might call a working critic, and I've been writing Uh, mostly uh, book reviews, but also other forms of criticism for uh, venues, including Poetry Magazine, uh, The Believer, uh, The New Left Review, and also uh, forthcoming, there will be also a piece, a very long piece on uh, Peter Weiss forthcoming from The Point very soon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're one of us. You're a point man, so to speak. Do you see yourself as working both both sides of the street, so to speak, when you move from the creation of literature, be it prose or poetry, to uh, critical work? This is a question that maybe helps us get into the examination of the what is it question. Uh, I do. Uh, and I'm not quite sure that everybody feels this way, but I think that that uh, the particular experience of having made the object uh, of a novel, certainly, in, and uh, not just having made it, but also uh, having gone through the process of publishing it, which strikes me as very relevant, uh, certainly informs the way I think about the books that I review, um, especially the contemporary ones. And the poem itself is criticism. It's an It's an essay in criticism and a sort of, parodic, almost Popian style. So um, my interest as as a critic of poetry, uh, that is uh, very much, very much uh, present. And the things that I've learned in writing that poem uh, manifest themselves in in nearly every critical piece on poetry. Mm -hmm. Now, we're trying to steer away from the question what poetry is simply because we've already used that one up, though it's tempting to explore it uh, at least briefly through the lens of criticism, namely whether, in your view, the work of a critic is fundamentally different when it's focused on Uh, say, a novel, as opposed to when it's focused on poetry, and whether, in turn, that difference can 
help us answer the question of what criticism is? I think that uh, if I understand you correctly, uh, the it is uh, important. It is important for every critic to be attentive to the kind of uh, object one has in front of them um, mm-hmm. uh, when one is when one is writing in the in the genre of criticism. And I suppose there, I've already given away uh, two two base level assumptions about what I think the thing is uh, in question, and so, such that it is different when uh, one is working with a novel than one is working with poetry in a very, uh, th- and that's in a very, very obvious way. These two particular modes and forms and their particular histories um, all become part of the consideration of what uh, the, what is, what is being done and how that is being received and presented. Um, but also that I would say as a, as a sort of practice is true, even at sort of uh, much um, sort of subsidiary levels. Um, mm-hmm. When you're talking about what kind of novel are we talking about? So recently I reviewed a historical mm-hmm. novel and that has a particular set of uh, genre expectations that come with it. Um, and, uh, or whether or not, for example, that you're, uh, the work is contemporary or is the author dead or, or so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Uh, and these are all, these are all, mm-hmm. I, I think, important considerations for the critic to have when approaching uh, the object of criticism. Moving back to both the etymology, but also the philosophical deployment of the notion of criticism, it's, closely wrapped up with its kind of semantic cousin crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, a critical moment is a moment from which things will never be the same again, uh, a turning point, so to speak. And that's significant, perhaps, for understanding, again, what criticism itself is, but also it makes it seem particularly strange or so to speak, next level to ask the question that I'm about to ask, namely, is criticism in crisis? That is to say, in the present moment with the economic structures that support or fail to support critical work, is it even possible to play a social role as a critic today? Um, this is a great question, and, and um, this is right, this is we're getting to the essence of things already uh, from the outset. Um, my answer to this question is the answer is yes and no, um, and the answer is uh, yes. Criticism is in crisis in that sense um, that uh, the the function of the critic, as it is as it has been previously known. Um, as an arbiter of taste, um, as a person who can uh, make or break a career in the in the old mid-century sense, uh, that is fast disappearing to the point of being gone. Um, but I think what is actually less discussed is, is the no part, um, in which sense uh, criticism as a mode of writing is, is flourishing, mm-hmm. um, and probably as a result of the crisis itself. Mm-hmm. In that, we see a proliferation of uh, uh, of very talented, extreme. I'm just overwhelmed. Uh, we have an embarrassment of riches in this town. Mm-hmm. The critics that we have, uh, just speaking in a sort of anglophone uh, mm-hmm. a literary or critical space, um, coming from either from as working novelists or poets or uh, writers. Uh, coming from the academy, people are being sort of forced out of the academy for mm-hmm. uh, many reasons, I'd say primarily economic reasons, and they're bringing their uh, academic expertise into um, a sort of you know, para-academic or mm-hmm. sort of academic critical space. Mm-hmm. And in that respect, what we have is a um, really vibrant critical community. Mm-hmm. Now, the function of those people, none of us, um, or very, very few of us, almost to the point where none of us is, you know, with the exception of the rule, uh, is that our influence is not the kind of influence that was wielded by critics in previous periods. But what we have is um, 
uh, sort of a, what I would see, what I see in the contemporary moment is a lateral move onto a kind of criticism that um, moves from the sort of classic consumer reports model, as it mm-hmm. is, as you still see in some in the newspapers, which still have book sections, mm-hmm. into a space where criticism has become an art in and of itself, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. A, a, a genre of writing in and of itself. And if we look at criticism as that, um, as a way of writing about, in this case, books, uh, in, in a way that sort of breaks down the sort of primary, secondary text relation. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of that, and it's really quite good. And mm-hmm. um, a lot, so many people are doing it. Not a day, or, and certainly not a week goes by where I don't see an absolutely impressive bit of criticism when viewed uh, as an art, uh, as an art form in and of itself. Right. Is this a, a, a paradoxical situation where we're left unable to explain why there's such a proliferation of high quality criticism at precisely the moment where the economic structure is least supportive of it? I, I think about, for example, Christian Lorenzen's lovely uh, never-ending plaint about all the listicles and the, mm. the, the transformation of what we used to think of as relatively medium to highbrow reviews into top 10 beach reads type uh, publications. And this is uh, something that is happening, you want to say, at the same time as criticism is also reaching new heights as an autonomous domain of creative expression. That's really interesting, but also paradoxical. In a, in a, in a broad sense, like the, 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 um, the singular fact of our time um, mm. uh, in terms of culture is abundance. Uh, and, mm-hmm. it, 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 and I just mean pure, sheer, qualitative yeah. abundance, right? Abundance of information, abundance of data, abundance of writing, abundance of venues. Uh, and that has, um, uh, you know, it's, um, I think probably the effects of that are overall harmful. But uh, if one were looking for, for a silver lining of it, what we're seeing is the proliferation of really quite stupid things, uh, of which uh, Christian's uh, argument about the, uh, the listicles is quite a spot on example. Um, and we see that, uh, you know, and especially in, uh, in venues where one, where the financial resources are more there to where one would expect uh, a better quality. Um, mm-hmm. we are not seeing that we are seeing the sort of, um, you know, the, 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 the typical complaints about, you know, clickbait articles and, uh, lowest con- common denominators of readers and so on and so forth. Um, but that coexists, and it doesn't negate. There's no more sorting mechanism for for really any kind of information distribution um, and its quality. Uh, we live in a sort of, in a weird way, in a very, very in principle egalitarian uh, production space uh, in terms of information. What that has led to is just a sort of, you know, the the the, the metaphor is always the flood. Uh, and a flood of information. And so what you're seeing is, and to, to your second point, I think it, that's actually, that's quite astute. Like insofar as the critic has indeed become the artist, you know, to, to steal a phrase from Oscar Wilde, um, what we're seeing is the kind of conditions, uh, you know, before, right? Say in the classic period of Bohemia in the sort of, uh, you know, mid 19th century France, there's a very strong division between the social character of the artist and the social character of the people writing about art um, and producing discursivity about art. And there was a very strong opposition between those two groups of people. And I'm generalizing here across a large bit of history. But now what we're seeing is that uh, as the critic becomes an artist, is forced to engage in this as a sort of expressive medium, uh, because there's so much abundance and because there's abundance generates competition for these very small perches at, at uh, you know, known or what is derided as legacy media. Uh, the critic, the artist, the academic have sort of been pooled and proletarianized in, uh, in a way. Uh, and they're responding to the same kind of uh, economic pressures. Right, right, right. right. The collapse of, 
the viable career path means that you no longer have to do it as a career and you can say what you really think and produce real criticism. <laughs> it seems along those lines then that the critic would uh, uh, want to take on the responsibility of sorting as well, like starting to help with the sorting right now to ensure that the right stuff gets uh, saved and filtered into our uh, attention as we as we go into the future. Yeah, no, there's a there's a little bit less of this than than I than I think I, I think I agree with you as a mm -hmm. sort of ethos of criticism, um, and there's a little bit less of this than one would think, uh, and I'm guilty of myself. Uh, guilty myself of this, uh, as anybody, uh, is that when I'm encountering something, especially um, like one of the things that I think about when I'm writing is, well, okay, I there are some times when I'm just like I just want to write about this object and stay with the object on its own terms, and there are other times in which I want to use the object as as a, as a starting point for a discussion about something else and to produce my own work parallel to the object. Mm -hmm. um, and insofar as, uh, and I think that happens quite frequently because the incentive is you want, when you're going to do criticism, you're also writing a piece yourself and you would like to have that particular piece um, mm -hmm. uh, reflected upon in a mm -hmm. particular way. So it has to have these sort of, uh, its own artistic qualities. And mm -hmm. I think that, uh, that's a difference in, in, in the sense that you know, the critic and the, the artist, as it were, are, are in a strange way, in, especially in literature, right, um, are in a strange way in competition within the, uh, the medium of the discussion itself. I wanted to maybe shift gears a little bit just to get in everything I have to explore with you today. And there's a lot to ask you what you think is the appropriate domain of the objects of criticism. Is there in principle a boundary to the objects that a critic could take up or is there nowhere you would stop? I mean, uh, I recently had a conversation with someone on the, I, uh, the what is art episode, I think it was, and we were talking a lot about the art nature boundary and one of the questions that came up when we were talking is why can't there be nature criticism <laughs> which is a really weird thing to ask um and i was kind of i was kind of floored by it you can address that if you want to if you think that's just kind of beyond the pale then you know we can move back closer to the realm of the human and talk about, say, the design of McDonald's Happy Meals or other kind of cultural products that usually pass under the radar of critical attention. If they do pass under the radar or are beyond the limits of criticism, then I suppose the question is why and what are the criteria for selection of objects? Um, my answer to that question, I guess that I'll have to do, well, I guess we can, we can debate this, but I, my answer to that question is there's no, no limit. Um, and uh, I, much like any, well, uh, I won't make it sound such as about other people, do, um, I have uh, a, a certain hierarchy of what I think is uh, a hierarchy of objects uh, in my brain and prejudices towards particular objects rather than others, some of which are justified. Um, I think that uh, 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 literature is a much more important social object than McDonald's Happy Meal box. Um, some of which are unjustified. I also think literature is, you know, more important than film. Totally unjustified prejudice. But that's just mm -hmm. my prejudice. Um, but to take the Happy Meal box, you know, uh, uh, Jane who wrote a mm -hmm. really wonderful piece about the play of fish. I love that mm -hmm. piece. About the of fish. Oh right, um, yeah, of course, and she's right too. Filet fish is fantastic. Totally right. <laughs> and there you go, right? Um, and the thing about that, uh, to, um, to to two points on that would be is like one, given the fact of total uh, informational abundance, uh, almost everything will get touched somewhere. Right. Um, uh, we might not, you know, there are artists and, and authors certainly who I, I uh, am outraged that they, that they are not a part of mainstream conversation, but that's how it is. 
Um, but nevertheless, uh, every time I think of those authors and I say, well, you don't know who this is, I find a uh, hundred people on Twitter who are saying, oh, no, of course, this is a great author. And, mm-hmm. and that's a, already a much larger community than existed in the, in the sort of pre-abundance period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in a sense that everything will get touched upon in the yeah. difference, um, really ultimately end of the day between uh, is, is, is the criticism of the uh, McDonald's having no box good. It's interesting to tell me something uh, new about mm-hmm. the object. Does it uh, change my way of looking at the world? Does it right. tell me why it's important to notice details that I would not otherwise notice? Um, yeah. Do I uh, see differently? Is primarily when I, when I think like what a critic does is a critic is a person who notices. Um, you know, like uh, Henry James says, you know, the writer is the person on whom nothing should be lost. Mm. And I think that ethos that that is true, and that goes for. I, I I cannot think of a thing in which I would not like to read good writing about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether whether or not it's good at writing or not is a secondary question. We can mm-hmm. discuss that yeah. case. But I'm pretty um, agnostic and sort of um, pluralistic about the possibility yeah. of critical objects. I, I suppose yeah. maybe one worry is that it's a pretty easy move for a Tyro critic to think, I'm going to go recover something from the infinite treasure trove of our culture uh, and say that this warrants uh, critical reexamination, you know juice newton or whoever you want to grab from the past um and someone is going to buy into it but your Mm -hmm. point of view is that uh it's one sort of has to be agnostic that everything is potentially worthy of critical re-examination because and maybe this is stronger than you would put it but because uh, the responsibility for making it worthy of criticism lies not with Juice Newton or the Happy Meal, but with the critic who trawls it back up. Totally. And I think that uh, there is a sense in which, and I I do understand people who who disagree with this point of view in the sense that there's, you know, uh, all persons who are in a, you know, uh, uh, who have, uh, allegiance to anything resembling high culture, think of themselves, uh, must think of themselves um, as you know, someone under siege. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a perfectly reasonable stance to take towards this sort of like, uh, this culture which just really, really bombards us with, uh, with yeah, as I was saying, the sort of infinite treasure trove of, of potential objects. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, if my model of the critic as artist um, uh, is is tenable, it, 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 it really should be the case that, uh, much like the artist, uh, the critic should have free reign to go for uh, anything. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that there are enough of us that it'll all sort of sort itself out in the wash. I, uh, I, maybe I'm confessing too much here, but I spend a great deal of time worrying that my multi-year harangue against uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and against uh, binge-watching worthy TV series and so on and so on amounts to little more than a prejudice in the end because I love Tijuana Bibles and uh, all sorts of detritus of junk culture of decades past. And if I try to come up with a, a sound reason for making the distinction between good junk culture and bad junk culture, the only ultimate answer I can come up with is because that's who I am. And yet I really feel the urgent need to impose this conception of things on other people. Um, and uh, is I, I'm now I'm not a professional working critic, but I wonder sometimes, is that what a critic is ultimately doing? They have their, the things they care about that they for whatever reason, perhaps some sort of uh, congenital deformation that they feel the need to impose on other people? Um, I think that that's one thing, right? Um, and I think that actually, I'll, I'll just go back and say that um, uh, vis-a-vis the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe 
and uh, let's say like prestige TV series. I've never seen any of these things. I'm not motivated to do so. I probably wouldn't read any writing about it. And I think that like if you wanted to have a criteria, if you wanted to sort of meet like we could meet the other view halfway, you could say, well, it's like the things in culture that really annoy me, uh, that that bother me personally. Um, are the ones in which I feel that there's an obligation to discuss them that is actually not a result of my own choosing, mm-hmm. but rather because there's a, a cultural saturation, um, and that cultural saturation is the result, uh, in turn, of a very large, very powerful, uh, very um, you know capital-intensive uh, publicity onslaught. Yeah. That that uh, you know just to pick on uh, you know, any TV series. Like, why is it that I have to know about that because everyone else is talking about it and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. And so I would say that like, if you were gonna do a hierarchy of things, like again, I think at the end of the day, it's a question of prejudices, but I'd rather read criticism about, again, the, the Happy Meal box, because mm-hmm. um, I haven't read that before. And there's tons of people who are gonna be talking about the Marvel cin- Cinematic Universe, yeah. which I don't, I don't understand why I'm obligated to care. Right. Um, and so in a sense, uh, the, the critics like often worry that we're imposing our own sort of, you know, uh, prejudices, taste preferences on other people. And in some respects, that's a, that's a good thing. You're like, hey, here's a new author. Uh, here's a new movie that I think that not, not enough people are talking about. I would like you to experience that because I think that will improve your experience of life. That's a that's a valuable thing. Again, you know, it's like uh, 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 we critics do that thing, uh, but we also actually do it in a in the least pernicious way possible relative to the culture at large. Mm-hmm. And we do it, I think, uh, with uh, self-doubt, self-reflection, and consideration as to whether that's a good thing, mm-hmm. which is not shared by the vast majority of, of the popular objects of our criticism. Yeah. I, at, a, at, at a certain moment, I wanted to propose that critics are something like uh, kind of small-scale uh, volunteer publicity machines for uh, works that don't have the publicity machine behind them that Scarlett Johansson in Black Widow or whatever has. But that's not quite right, because unlike the publicity machine behind Black Widow, critics also write negative reviews, right? Uh, and, uh, And publicity is, however kind of emptily, nonetheless unrelentingly positive, whereas mm-hmm. it's part of the work of a critic also to pan or to uh, take up a work in view of its shortcomings. So that means that the two are quite different. And I think here's here's the point at which I would say, um, when we're talking about what is criticism as a what is X object, um, we have to say that they're also, it's worth remembering that uh, that here's one critic can do many different kinds of things, mm. um, and criticism as a whole, when considered as a sort of class or group of people, are are doing all of them. So mm-hmm. uh, one of the functions, one of the functions of criticism is um, is precisely yeah to do that to say hi, um, and I you know I I wrote about. Uh, uh, Sergio de, de la Pava's book, A Naked Singularity, and my purpose in writing about Sergio de la Pava's book, A Naked Singularity, was that more people read Sergio de la Pava's book, A mm-hmm. Naked Singularity. Uh, the same with uh, a recent piece on, on my record that I wrote. The purpose of that was I went and read her work and wanted a, a critical overview that would explain why it is that this was a likable thing. Uh, and so I wrote it. One didn't exist in English, so I wrote it. And the aim of that was that um, more people should read that because I believe, you know, when we have these sort of objects, actually the culture, the the culture will be benefited by more people liking these things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in another instance, you know, I um, you you take a work and you're like, no, this this isn't good. So the classic the classic critique, anywhere from gentle critique to hatchet job, mm-hmm. uh, is another thing uh, one could do or. Um, one could say, well, what does this object say about us, right? That's mm-hmm. that's a very popular gesture movement. All of these different moves are their different functions of criticism, um, and they're all sort of tools in the arsenal. They're all paths one can go on uh, as a critic. Um, 
And yes, in that respect, it is very, very different from the kind of um, implicit uh, uh, publicity entertainment. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose I've seen recently some, uh, in fact, point affiliated or point adjacent people like Becca Rothfeld, Lauren Euler, uh, defending the irreducible value of negativity in critical work against something that is, I take it, a kind of infection of the community of critics by the mentality of the publicity machine that they take to be vapid, but it's also associated, I, I suppose, with people like Dave Eggers, who have argued over the years that writers are embattled enough, they should all just encourage each other and say, hey, good job. Um, so uh, do you have a, uh, any particular commitments on this on this controversy as to whether there's kind of a duty to go negative mm -hmm. yeah i think i think that that uh and uh beck and lauren those are those are critics i admire very very much i, I reviewed uh, lauren's book mm -hmm. um and i think that the assumption there right i i haven't i haven't disagree in this sense mm -hmm. the assumption there is based on assumption of the kind of book under review. Mm -hmm. And the assumption is precisely that we're talking about the, uh, so for example, the, the, the author in question is Sally Rooney, right? Okay. Or what one, right? Mm -hmm. So who is, what, what is Sally Rooney? Sally Rooney uh, is a contemporary author. Uh, that uh, contemporary author is being published by a big five publishing house. Uh, the publicity apparatus for Sally Rooney's work is everywhere. Um, there is a large critical impulse of people who work in the industry. Like if you have a large enough advance, you will get positive reviews. Mm -hmm. places. That is a fact. And that is a shameful fact about how, mm -hmm. um, how publicity works, even, even in a small media object uh, like a book. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we're talking about uh, a Sally Rooney, or when we're talking about uh, any contemporary author, um, and it's different when you have a debut author and you have a sort of big um, known, uh, you know, known entity like uh, mm -hmm. a new deal, right? Mm -hmm. So in, in those particular cases, all bets are off, and uh, indeed the notion that those people, those people, by virtue of their their uh, advance and their publicity or their status in the culture, will get reviews. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, as a as a uh, ethical result, um, those people are open to critical opinion as such, whatever mm -hmm. it happens to be. Mm -hmm. um, and that's going to be different um, for depending on who gets this assigned, at what particular place, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and so, in in those cases, yeah, uh, fair game. Uh, however, uh, as a general principle. That doesn't apply, for example, to, to many of the sort of writers that that uh, that I am writing about, who mm -hmm. are you know, who, who for whom the difference is going to be review or not review, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and who the difference is going to be um, what is uh, you know will will people know about this particular thing, and so I think that the one of the the, and and at which point, like the reason you're reviewing it at all, as opposed to not reviewing it, uh, is to bring people's attention to it because it wouldn't otherwise get that attention. And the very fact that you're reviewing it implies that you think it is worthy of the attention that you are about to lavish upon it. And so, again, when we think about the sort of ethics of criticism, there's not one criticism, uh, and to um, reduce it. Uh, the, the, the one critique I have of the like uh, critic as defender uh, of via uh, negativity of the culture is precisely that it already assumes the kind of cultural object under review. Right, right. Um, and again, like uh, in in as as such, it is totally justified. Um, uh, but as a prescription for entirety of criticism. Neither the Eggers' view 
or the sort of or the Rafa view captures all critical, uh, all all potential objects uh, right. within the field. And I think I think actually Becca and Mar would would uh, would I think they would agree with this. Right, 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 right. Um, even though in the particular case, um, and that was the sad thing about the the, the those particular debates is precisely there was the the sense in which this was a universalizable proposition across a very limited section of the of the field and even within that section of the field there was there was debate about it um and that that is both frustrating and in need of a broadening out of um across the across the field as a whole of, of all the thousands upon thousands of books that get that publish uh, there are different kinds of books and therefore different kinds of criticisms to right. be applied Right, 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 right. What does a critic need to know? And I, I wonder about this because I, I think about. So I used to love to read Robert Christgau in the in the Village Voice in the in the nineties when he would uh, avowedly say, "I'm an old man now, and I have no idea what what CDs they're sending my way." But this one's called Sync, or this one's called The Spice Girls. Let's check it out. And it was in in some ways a uh, uh, doctor ignorant right a learned ignorance that only uh, an old master like Christgau could pull off his ignorance was against the background of decades of uh, of learning but there's also I think a certain value placed on a kind of intuitive ability to say I like this I don't like this but to not know why and to be a kind of like I'm thinking about uh, the famous you might remember the name I'm forgetting him the American uh, wine critic who is a breath of fresh air in the wine world they say because he doesn't have this fancy vocabulary of the French he just takes it in and he says I like it and then uh, the, the next thing you know everyone wants to buy the wine uh, that seems like something. Uh, a, a, a strategy that could easily attract uh, charlatans, but also it seems like there's a serious question about what the actual background body of knowledge a critic must have is, and how this in turn constitutes what we might call critical competence. My uh, intuition is that uh, the ideal critic knows everything. Mm -hmm. uh, knows everything, and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and that, that is what we all aspire to, and we all fail um, in in certain respects. But um, or at least in in any given instance, uh, uh, a reasonable compromise would be in, in any given instance um, to know what one has to learn to write that particular piece, uh, mm -hmm. and to do that in uh, in any sense. Because if you want, you know, if you want to. Uh, you know, if the aim, and the, uh, commissions don't always permit this, but if the aim in an ideal sense is, is a sort of perfection, um, even a debatable perfection, uh, or in which there are multiple competing perfections, um, you want to bring as much to bear as possible because what you're going to be doing is looking at a thing, and you want to be able to make sure to see as much of that thing as possible um and knowing as much as you can and it's again it's hard to generalize and for example in the in the, in the recent piece of i i reviewed um a book uh historical fiction about uh Rivka galshin's new book and for that i read other uh books set in that period um i read and had a little bit of knowledge about uh, it was about uh, the 17th century witch craze i'm going to know about it the witch crazes, different theories about the witch craze, um, about the genre of historical fiction, what are the issues in that genre, uh, along with, you know, what are the uh, um, uh, sort of contemporary uh, questions that um, that might be raised mm -hmm. in the production or in the, in the reception of that book by not just me, but by also potentially a sort of imagined uh, reader, along with how do books get made, uh, what are the challenges and author components from putting together a book? What are the things that get a 
particular book published in a particular space uh, by a particular people? Um, what do they think that they're doing with this book? And so on and so forth. And so all these are, are uh, things get pretty complicated pretty quickly. And that, of course, is just, you know, a, a sand, uh, a grain of sand on the dune of possible knowledge. But um, the critics that I like the best, like uh, Guy Davenport, you read a, a book by, uh, you read a piece by Guy Davenport, and you're just sort of overwhelmed by the things that Guy Davenport is able to notice. For example, uh, in the geography of imagination, he looks at, he's talking about uh, the painting, oh gosh, uh, American Gothic, right? Which mm -hmm. is a sort of banal uh, painting. And he's able to say where the buttons on the, on the dentist, he's a dentist, first of all, uh, the, the person in the painting, and, and he's able to say where the buttons on the dentist's wife would have come from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, through that, um, that, that kind of detail, um, uh, the, there's an extrapolation of, 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 a, of, a, of a literary theory about the Gothic. And mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing you would not be able to see if you had not looked at the button. Um, or the way there's this lovely passage in The Rules of Art by Bourdieu when he talks about the meaning of ultramarine paint. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, uh, I don't know much about painting. And when I go look at a sort of quattrocentro, uh, you know, altar or whatever, I look at it and I see blue. You know, mm -hmm. I see the, I think it's blue. And Bourdieu discusses this painting and he's like, no, 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 it's not blue, it's ultramarine. Mm -hmm. And that difference matters. Here's why. Because ultramarine would have cost four florins. This other kind of blue, German blue, would have cost two florins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. I mean, it seems to me that um, it depends on the object once again. And by the way, it's Robert Parker is the name I was thinking of. And the French have been yeah. worried over the years about the Parkerization of wine criticism. Now, as far as I'm concerned, Robert Parker can have the wine. He can say whether it's good or bad. I don't really care. Uh, and that has something to do with the fact that I don't take wine criticism all that seriously as an endeavor. I think I'm just perfectly happy with a kind of degustibus non disputandum approach. That's the end of it. Uh, and my intuition is quite, quite different for literature, where I absolutely agree with you, or for painting. And so it's almost as if this uh, different, these differing intuitions track the, 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 the distinction that I tried to get at in an earlier question when I asked you, what is the appropriate domain for criticism? Though, of course, different people will have different intuitions here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I want to say that bringing those two things together, like uh, any object goes, but the difference between good criticism and bad criticism of that object is the level of um, knowledge that the, that the person brings to it and that knowledge could be could be tangential and, and surprising at the end of the day i'm with you i don't uh i don't know what the the rules of uh of the genre of wine criticism are and i probably um i don't know if my ex maybe my experience could be changed by a, a description of uh, a sort of suitably elaborate description um but at the end of the day we're also forced with the problem is that um you know uh you know, there's a sort of something irreducibly subjective about the, the, the experience, especially about an object of literal taste, the mm -hmm. eating, um, but true for other objects as well. And the critic, at the end of the day, uh, that cannot be the, um, that, that, that can be the final word on it, because mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, uh, why should I care what someone else's subjective opinion about the thing is, if I'm going to have one as well, and they're equally valid. Yeah. Um, I want I want a criticism, whatever it is, uh, that and and canon. Uh, I I love criticism which incorporates the story of the of the critic um, experiencing the thing. I, I think that is also an interesting way of doing criticism. But at the end of the day, it's going to have to reach across this divide using language um, mm -hmm. to persuade me ultimately that whatever whatever it is that the critic wants to persuade me it's going to have to ex, ex you know exit uh pure subjectivity mm -hmm. yeah i've over the years yeah i've i've disagreed with the philosopher barry smith who uh 
works on the philosophy of wine, which I think is a uh, <laughs> a bit of a racket uh, that he's that he's worked out to get free tours of vineyards. Uh, though I, I I mean he's great, he's wonderful. Um, but you know I've tried to make precisely this distinction that wine is in your mouth, whereas the painting or the sculpture is before viewers who can behold it together and come up with, to speak with Kant, at least some kind of intersubjectively valid judgment about an external object. Um, and accordingly, for Kant, uh, uh, gastronomy uh, is pretty low on the hierarchy of the kinds of judgments of taste you could make, whereas painting and sculpture are at the top. But again, here, I'm constantly worried about uh, my a disposition to create to, to create hierarchies and I always wonder how historically conditioned that is and how much prejudice is is is, is baked into it I think there's also should be said in that particular case and again this is not myself knowing uh, being ignorant about about wine criticism is that what, what we've again described here is a situation in which the point of uh, the point of the, of, of the critical mediation is to tell us whether something is good or bad, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that is sort of, again, a, sort of a paradigm, what I was saying earlier is a sort of consumer report paradigm. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and perhaps, you know, even in something like, let's say, wine criticism, you could, uh, there, there could be other ways of addressing what's valuable about that thing, whether whether at the end of the day, for example, it could, could be not a question of like whether or not I want to drink it, mm -hmm. uh, except uh, to say is like, uh, how does how does this thing get produced, and what the the way that this produce it's produced say about us as mm -hmm. a group of people, or what does right. um, you know what is the what is the novelty of this particular thing? Like, what are the the, the techniques of production which are are novel? So like, yeah. which are all gestures that are that, that are sort of very standard in literary criticism, right? Yeah. We could, talk about, we could talk about a new formal technique and how that formal technique operates. And I think that at a, at a, at a production point, uh, you could probably make the same gesture about uh, about wine yeah. uh, as well. It could be interesting for a reader who may or may not ever taste that wine. Ever. Right. That's, that's once again coming around to your idea of criticism as an autonomous domain of... Uh, yeah. Of, of expression, right? Yeah. Um, that's so interesting. Uh, we should start uh, uh, moving towards a conclusion, but before we do that, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about uh, poetry, both your work in poetry and poetry in general, and how this can perhaps help us to answer the what is criticism question. You are yourself working in the genre of epic poetry, which must be, among other things, which must be a kind of, uh, which must be something you experience as a kind of uh, uh, defiance of uh, everything that that the world around us cares about. This is a, a form that has slipped, many would think, irremediably into the past, and yet you're contributing to it, and you've already said today that your contribution to it is a kind of critical intervention. So say a little bit more about what you're doing there. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I should say that, that, that the, the, the genesis of this um, I had a thesis, uh, and I wanted to, and it was a thesis about poetry, and I wanted to write it as a poem. And at that moment, um, it, uh, it started off as a joke, really, uh, that for the, for the reasons you describe, I think it are accurate. Uh, this form is uh, uh, irremediably gone. And the reason that it's irremediably gone, one of the things the poem discusses is because the social conditions for its production and reception have long gone. Um, <clears throat> and so it started off as a joke and it ended up as a project of over a year's work, mm -hmm. um, which I suppose gives you an indication into the sort of uh, uh, er 
irrational decisions that I make in my life. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I wanted to find. I wanted to find. There, there was no way that anyone was going to let me publish it as uh, as a long essay. Mm-hmm. Um, and as it turns out, there's no way that uh, <laughs> anyone was going to let me publish it as a poem. Uh, but what it is is that it's a 95-page poem that goes from Homer all the way to the uh, the present. Um, Ruby Cower is the last uh, poet that is discussed. Oh. The entire sweep of, uh, of uh, at least Western uh, poetry. Um, and the central thesis, and, and it is, it's an essay in criticism. Um, it's discursive, it is rhetorical, it makes an argument. Um, and the argument, and, and this is precisely what is thought to be, given our current uh, conception of what poetry is, uh, the unpoetic. It's, it's, uh, it's discursive and rhetorical rather than troping uh, and imagistic, for example. Um, it does play with uh, music. It contains footnotes also in verse. It plays with form um, uh, in precisely these ways. But it's also you know, a throwback to, to the sort of 18th century uh, verse essay, which does not exist. <clears throat> There's no reason it should exist as a poem. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than for the amusement of writing it as such and for the amusement of reading it as such. But of course, one of the interesting things about writing under these sort of constraints, the constraints of poetry, the constraints of meter, it's metered, um, is that one comes to see why it is that that is a difficult form for the ex- uh, expression of abstract ideas, except in the sort of parodic way that, I, that, that I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has to do ultimately with the, the, the sort of interesting, the most interesting question to me, I think, is what is the medium of poetry? And mm-hmm. What is poetry the medium? Uh, and of course, as you, as you know, is that in, in, in the West, at least, the, the, the original medium and function of, of poetry is, is a, a storage medium. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We, are, we have meter. Um, precisely because meter is conducive to remembering large mm-hmm. chunks of text. Right, right. If I can just break in here briefly uh, to say for the audience that uh, uh, Ryan and I first began corresponding uh, as a result of our shared admiration of a scholar named Milman Perry, uh, who died young in the 1930s, and who was both a classicist and an ethno- ethnographer, who uh, determined that uh, the epic of Homer uh, had existed prior to being written down as an oral tradition. And he did this by doing ethnographic field recordings of Bosnian bards who also worked in a tradition that that involved some of the same formal elements as Homeric epic. And Perry established that these elements are there, working with these living representatives of the tradition, that these elements are there uh, as, uh, as, as, uh, as you say, Ryan, aide mémoire, as, as tools for getting the, uh, the, the, the epic stored in the mind. And so this is indeed something that is very foreign to our world, not only do we have uh, books for the past several or a handful of centuries now, but we have much more sophisticated technologies for taking care of the storage for us, right? And this profoundly transforms the way we uh, relate to works of literature and the way we understand what literature is. Absolutely. That, that's as good and succinct of a description of Mimi uh, Perry's book as I. I've yet heard. Um, and yeah, so uh, my hypothesis here, um, and of course, Norman Perry gets picked up and it, it, he's sort of known at all. He's known because he was such an important influence on uh, Marshall McLuhan, mm-hmm. uh, whose birthday it is today, I think. Hey, wow. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but the theory that, that um, McLuhan goes on to propound is that this is true of uh, this, this sort of 
fact about epic poetry, Greek epic poetry, is in fact true about all media. And one of the things that I do in the, the context platform, or the argument is essentially, uh, it's true for all stages of poetry, that's what I argue, that every, um, is it the, the, the means of storage, distribution, and production mediate the relationship between a poet uh, and the audience. And that's just as true in a particular way and under the particular conditions for Homer as it is for Petrarch, as it is for Baudelaire, as it is for Malame, as it is for Pound, as it is for the uh, language poets, uh, and as it is for today's sort of uh, found poets, concrete poets, and uh, now we're insta-poets, right? Um, mm -hmm, and if you look at the, the media, uh, and media development, the history of media, you'll always find uh, a group of poets who sort of got there first. Mm -hmm. um, and that uh, the, the shadow of futurity that, that, uh, that, um, that the shadow of futurity that falls in the present that Shelley talks about in the defense of poetry, mm. well, the shadow of futurity is this, is, is this new media development. And you can look and see uh, in every kind of formal innovation in poetry, mm -hmm. working through of the uh, possibilities and availabilities of, of different kinds of media, so it's manuscripts or print, or uh, the availability of, um, uh, of cheaper print, uh, or the postal system as mm -hmm. uh, distribution mechanism, um, or of course, as today, the, the thing we're all concerned about is the sort of the digital flood, as it were, the, mm -hmm. the sort of overabundance. And I think that one of the reasons that this question always comes up in our present times, like everyone says, effectively we have a, it's interesting to me, uh, effectively we have an institutional definition of poetry, a poetry um, that a poet is whoever can get them to believe is a poet and is claiming that they work with poetry, mm -hmm. sort of parallel to the art world. Right, um, right. The and George yet, Dickey's thesis of in the institutional theory of art, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's mm -hmm. functionally what we have um, in, in terms of our understanding of genre and poetry. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting to me is that the number one response to the poem that I wrote, which is extremely, which is interestingly um, formally traditional, but primarily discursive, is it's not poetry. Mm -hmm. And that gives me hope. That gives right. me hope because there's a, a kernel of belief in that 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 poetry is something that can be uh, defined. And I think that what people are responding to in that is a discontinuity in what I was hoping to write in this form, just to show that what we've forgotten, first of all, um, uh, the formal possibilities that have fallen away as the social conditions for their production have also fallen away. Um, but also a sense in which we are committed, uh, sort of a provocation where no one is being provoked, committed to the idea of, um, of some defense of some idea of poetry. And in this particular case, it seems the trope against the, dis the discursive. So here the right. criticism is precisely the other. Right. Uh, uh, and that's interesting to me, just as a sort of um, important, I think that's a nice thing that, uh, that this particular poetic experiment was considered out of bounds as poetry precisely because it operated in a, a critical as opposed to troping uh, realm. Well, I, I hope it will make you filthy rich, <laughs> if not immediately. <laughs> um, this is weird, you know, I, I think I hear some wind blowing. And I'm I'm not quite sure why because I, I I like everything you've said. Maybe what it is, maybe the reason we're ending in aporia uh, is because I'm still somewhat attached myself to the idea of naive criticism. Uh, I'm worried about the way it might invite charlatans, um, but I also think it's. Uh, uh, an important social role to keep open for at least a select few. How they're selected is a complicated question, uh, but I feel like uh, we need some people around 
who just give us a thumbs up or a thumbs no thumbs down in an inscrutable way that they refuse to explain and it becomes a kind of quasi priestly thing even though i absolutely love value appreciate uh your ideal of criticism which as you very nicely put it is to know everything even if that ideal can never be attained <laughs> um in any case well, as, as i to say that this apria was the was the outcome i was hoping for oh good yeah 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 one thing i always like to uh remind people of is that it's not like agreement equals winning right <laughs> um after all uh one thing that apria can show is how uh formidable the concept in question is or uh how difficult it is to get a handle on it and that speaks in favor of sp- uh, devoting your life to it right <laughs> whereas if it's if it's if it's easy to come come to agreement about it then it's probably something really dumb <laughs> yeah no apparently means the the conversation goes on and that's important. exactly yeah 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 anyhow listen uh, this has been a fantastic conversation again okay. i've been here with ryan ruby and we've been talking about criticism this is one more time what is x and i'm your host justin eh smith for the point magazine and we'll see you next time bye bye ryan bye justin thank you for having me